0: So on April 27th, the film Avengers Infinity War will be released into theaters for the general public. Anyone excited about seeing that film? Yeah, there's some of you out there. Uh, For those of you now don't even know the words that just came out of my mouth, you're not quite as nerdy or whatever, uh, let me just break it down a little bit. The the Avengers is this Marvel comic book movie, and it's based around this idea to bring together a group of remarkable people so that when we needed them, they could fight the battles we never could. From super-powered villains to technologically advanced alien invaders, the Avengers assemble and fight against foes that ordinary human beings could never overcome. The genre of the hero, the one who possesses strength, courage, and power to do what is beyond ordinary human limitations, extends way back to our earliest records of, of human literature from the epic of Gilgamesh to the poetry of Homer, to Icelandic mythology, and the Lord of the Rings saga, the comic book heroes of the last hundred years are no exception. Somehow, it is human instinct to know that we need a hero, a savior that is more than we are. And I would argue, and I'm far from the first to do so, that our human desire and inherent need for a savior for a, is based on reality, All of our heroes, our myths, our epic sagas, our shadows of the one true story told about the one true hero, which is the hero that God sent, Jesus the Christ. This evening, we're going to look at one episode in the story of our hero, Jesus, and rather than having you stand and read the scripture as I often do, I'm going to read the scripture in chunks, so I'll just let you sit as we do that but i would invite you to stand as we pray over this time that we have together so would we'll stand for that please lord we thank you for this word that you have not only given us in the beginning but preserved through your superintendence through the power of your spirit through faithful men and women who have copied it and transferred it to us and i pray as we talk about it, that you wouldn't allow us to take it for granted, that by your same Spirit that allows us to have it and to understand it and to read it, that you would help it to sink deep into our hearts, so that it would be a transformative word, not just an informative word. We trust you for that work, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. We're going to be rooted in Luke chapter... 11, starting in verse 14. If you've got your Pew Bible, you can follow along if you like. And I'm just going to read the first few verses. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts. He knew their thoughts. Okay. In the ancient world and in the world of this biblical text, as in many non Western cultures even to this day, the worlds of spiritual and physical are much more closely related than we give them credit for. In modern Western culture, which is what we live in, we compartmentalize our thinking about such things, spirit. And physical and emotional and social. We have all these specialists and specialties and and false boxes that we put everything in. We have physicians for our physical ailments, counselors and psychiatrists for our mental and emotional struggles. We have prayer or yoga or religious experience for our spiritual well being. We have turned humans into modular beings where we look at the sum of the parts more than we look at the whole. In some ways, our technologies and training are expressions of God's common grace. I want you to hear me saying that loud and clear. Like, there's a lot of good stuff about the way we do life. We were in the gold mining, my family and I, we were in the gold mining museum in Winthrop. Anyone been over there before? Winthrop? Yeah. So it's this mock-up of an 1800s gold mining town and so you've got the schoolhouse and you've got like a a sample clothing store and a post office and they have a medical center there too with like all of these old contraptions that look more like torture tools than than they do anything that would bring us health. And so I want to say that I'm thankful that I live in a day and age where I can get my teeth fixed without a pry bar where I can get a bone set without a sawing it off or amputation, and I can count backwards before surgery to 15 rather than just being handed a bite stick and say, get, you know, suck it up, okay? I love anesthetic. Well, if I have to have it. <laughs> I don't like pain. I'm glad we live in a, in a world where it is normal to talk about our trauma with counselors and people who take seriously our emotional health. I'm thankful that we have vaccines for smallpox and other poxes and terrible diseases, but in other ways, we're just, we're just horribly ignorant. I mean, with all of the good also comes some bad. Like, we don't take seriously enough that what we do with our bodies has effects on our emotions, And we don't live with a healthy awareness that our ethical choices affect our souls, that our choices might actually be opening doors that allow supernatural, spiritual other beings to come and influence us or even to dwell in us. In many cultures today, and in the world in which this story takes place, people could recognize the influence of the spiritual world such as, but not limited to, demonic possession. And one of the ways they would try and help other people by getting rid of this demonic possession would be through the the use of special words and incantations. In the Jewish tradition, they would use prayers and incense to coerce the evil spirit to leave. And these techniques were and are effective only some of the time. Apparently, the man in the story that we're looking at tonight was afflicted by a demon who was causing him to be mute. He was unable to speak because of a spiritual influence in his life. Now, it's easy, and there's lots of it, to read the scholarship of white dudes about weird things that don't happen in a white Western world. So I reference those guys and women, but I also look to the Africa Bible Commentary, Because this stuff happens there more often even in today's world. And so here's a a quote from an African scholar. He writes, In contrast to the frustrated attempts by exorcists who would use much mumbo-jumbo in trying to achieve their goal, Jesus effected his cures with a single command. Hence, other exorcists would readily recognize his superior power. Enter Jesus, the hero, into the story the one who can do what we cannot do for ourselves. He cast the demon out of the man, and the man who was mute, the man who was in bondage to an evil power, was able to speak. And the crowds were amazed. They weren't amazed because they'd never seen someone cast a demon out before. They were amazed because, as we have seen in so many other stories about Jesus, he healed and showed power over the physical and spiritual realm in the way that no one else did. He did it by speaking to it. And when he says stuff, stuff happens. Like he talks to storms and they stop. People don't do that. No fancy prayers, no incense, no magic words, No ecstatic dancing or self-injury, as was the custom among many shamans and spiritual healers. Pretty cool, right? Everyone loves a hero. Well, no, not really. Actually, we don't all love a hero. Let's go back to our superhero genre for a moment. We're living in an age, I don't know if you're into superhero stuff or comics or at least the Marvel Universe movies, but we really don't have any pure heroes anymore. Like Even when I was a kid, Superman was, he was kind of boring because he was such a goody-two-shoes, but even now in the, in, the, in the DC world where you've got Superman, he's got, he's got flaws now, right? In fact, he even died in one show. We live in the age of the anti-hero. The anti-hero is the one who has superpowers, who is generally on the side of good in the big, the big picture, but they have some serious flaws that make them imperfect and therefore identifiable with the reader, right? So take Iron Man, Tony Stark, who's this genius, self-invented the Iron Man suit, which gives him the ability of flight, gives him super strength, computer augmented reality, and the firepower and resilience to stand up to threats of all kinds. But he's also painfully arrogant, Does not know how to treat women. And he's fearful to the point of obsession with power and self-preservation. Black Widow is another character. She is a walking weapon, a master of espionage, combat, and martial arts. She's courageous and fearless, but she has skeletons in her closet. And her past casts a shadow of guilt and remorse and shame over the things that she's done in her past. And it haunts her and her character throughout. Even Captain America, who is kind of the poster child for integrity, hard work, and doing the right thing, has his own inner demons to work with. He is so convinced in his own mind of the right course of action that he can find himself alienated from other people, even fighting his own friends in order to serve the greater good. The fact is that in the Marvel movies, the Avengers are not entirely loved by the population of regular people. Sure, when monsters come to destroy the earth, you're pretty glad that the Avengers are there to, like, kill the monsters so that you can go back to work the next day and love your family. But when the immediate danger is gone, the people turn on the Avengers. Why do they do that? Because we are suspicious of other people or other beings who wield great power. We don't like it when people are more powerful than us. People grow jealous of others with special abilities. They want to regulate and control them so they don't feel threatened. You feel all of Jesus' interactions with the religious leaders, they're always trying to check his authority, trying to put him in his place, trying to take him down a few notches. You notice that? And third, when heroes get involved in a big mess, they make big messes. They make changes. And changes you didn't notice in your own life, they're pretty hard to deal with, especially when you're set in your ways. There's collateral damage when a hero comes to do their work. Sometimes heroes have to kill a monster by pulling down a building on its head and smashing it. That's all fine, but what if you're the one who owned the building? What if your life's work was in that building? What if someone you loved was in that building? Jesus came casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. For those trapped in oppression, this is great news. Jesus is a hero. But for people in power, the people who had their minds made up about how to interpret scriptures and how to practice the Sabbath and what kinds of people made one clean or unclean, Jesus was a threat. He was making a mess of their neat world. And since Jesus didn't cast out demons with techniques, but with authority, there was only two ways he could be doing it. Either he had the power of God to command demons to come out with his word, or he was a powerful evil agent who was in league with Beelzebub. That's a, a pejorative term that means literally the Lord of the Flies. And you know where flies congregate? That's why it's pejorative. And it's the it's literally the prince of demons. It's referring to Satan. That's one of his names. So these religious leaders couldn't see the good news in the fact that a man in bondage was released and able to speak. They only saw that it was Jesus who did it. And since Jesus healed on the Sabbath and ate with sinners and treated women equally and touched lepers and had tax collector disciples and interpreted the scriptures in his own authority, well, he couldn't be an agent of God. So he must be an adversary. Think about that for a moment. We don't like heroes because when they save us, they make messes of our lives. We have a huge, I have a huge, and I'll let you fill in your own blank. I have a huge sin problem. And sin and death are like a monster from outer space that I can't defeat. The ability to overcome sin and death is beyond our combined human capacity. But then the hero comes from another world. He breaks the power of sin and death, he makes new life possible. His name is Jesus, he's the Savior. But then we see these buildings coming crashing down all around us. If sin is defeated, then what happens when we're still participating in it? We're participating in a world that's crumbling. Some of us have built up buildings of fear and anger, the twin emotions that make us feel strong and secure. And Jesus will tear that right down, and it feels unsettling. Because Jesus, our Savior, is at the same time breaking down this bastion of security. And the fortress of financial security and retail therapy is called into question when the Savior comes to town. The hero who rescues from sin and death is calling us to open the gates of our personal Fort Knox mentally. And he's calling us to be generous. And it challenges all that the world tells us about what it means to be secure and happy, and wise. We've built walls, some of us, around our coping mechanisms. Are they drugs, or alcohol, or pornography, or virtual escapism, entertaining ourselves to numbness. And Jesus is breaking those down. And it makes us angry at first, and vulnerable, and powerless. Why can't he just defeat some of our big enemies and leave us alone? People are still trying to put Jesus in a box to make him the leader of their private religion, or they try and discredit him altogether as a fraud. In this story, the religious leaders tried to paint Jesus as evil and as an anti-hero, as a person in league with the evil one. Let's see how that goes. Luke eleven seventeen through 20. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I... Cast out demons by Beelzebub. And who do you say your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus responds to their accusation with an argument from logic. In warfare, it's advantageous to cause division in the enemy camp. Sometimes you can do that politically, by causing relational strife within an army. It's even better if you can cause an uprising within the enemy ranks, so in effect, they fight against themselves. Just to stay on the theme of my Marvel thing, that's exactly what happened in Civil War, Captain America Civil War. Okay, but let's stay with Jesus. He's more important. So Jesus basically calls their logic into question. They had rejected the possibility that Jesus was an agent from God, so they assumed he must be an agent of Satan's. But why would Satan have an agent that goes around undoing the work of his other agents? That's crazy. If he's got some demons putting people in bondage, why would he also have an agent named Jesus, allegedly, uh, going around releasing people from that bondage? So what's the answer? Jesus proposes something else. If it's not the evil one doing this, and logically it makes no sense that the evil one would endorse Jesus, then it must be that the kingdom of God has come near. And here I want to point out two specifics. First, there's a type of healing that Jesus does. He delivers a man who is mute because of the oppression of an evil spirit. Why is that important? because it's just the type of healing that prophets like the prophet Isaiah said would come about when God would bring his kingdom and rescue his people. Isaiah 35 in particular, if you wanna do some homework later on, talks of God coming to encourage the anxious, to open blind eyes, to unstop deaf ears, to heal the mute. Think of all the types of ailments in the world or even in the ancient world. Cancer, pox, malaria, more than you could possibly mention. But what types of healings are we consistently hearing Jesus doing? It's always healing blind people and deaf people and mute people and lame people. It's always those types of things. Why? Every one of those types of healings, even raising people from the dead like Lazarus, those all have Antecedents in the prophets. Jesus is showing by his very work. It's not that he doesn't care about people with other diseases. He's got three years before he's getting crucified in his adult ministry. His actions teach about who he is. And that's one of the points of this. He's like doing this in front of them. It's not about casting out just a demon, it's about doing the work that God is supposed to do when he comes with his kingdom. Second, Jesus says, if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The finger of God is a term that we've heard before. Any guesses where? Just name one book of the Bible. It's an important one. Exodus, I hear? I heard him say it with confidence. Exodus. Yes, of course, you meant that all along. The Exodus. The finger of God is the, the part that in Exodus 15, we talk about the plagues. And God works through Moses to, to, to bring these plagues on Pharaoh to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt. It is by the finger of God that these things happen. And if Jesus is doing things by the finger of God, then that suggests that his work is a new sort of exodus, an exodus bringing people out of bondage, not from mere political enemies, but from the powers of the evil one himself. Okay, here's another illustration. Verses 21 and 23, through 23. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him ...and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus depicts the Satan as a strong man in full armor guarding his house. In this illustration, those he oppresses are his house... After the fall, and up until the time of Jesus, Satan had sway over humanity. He had us overpowered. We could not defeat the armored strong man. But Jesus, the hero, has overpowered him. He stripped him of his armor. And in passages like Ephesians 4, 8, it suggests that Jesus not only sets us free from the oppression of Satan, but he distributes his armor to his disciples right? Remember the armor of God and all of that stuff? And it's quoting a psalm where he, de- he, he defeats an enemy and redistributes his plunder. Jesus is the hero who has done what we could not do. He's beaten our foe, and then he strengthened us with the armor so that we can stand in the power of Jesus against the forces of evil. But receiving this deliverance Is a choice. Jesus is speaking to people who ought to know better by this point. He is arguing with people who knew the scriptures, these religious leaders. He is speaking to what we might call insiders, okay? This is the difference between speaking to a general crowd and speaking to maybe Bible scholars, all right? And when he speaks to insiders, he says things like, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me, who's not about my work, actually is against my work. There's no neutral. But notice this, and I, this is important for me to share, that whenever speaking to outsiders, to Gentiles, to lay people, to uneducated people, to lepers, to women, to marginalized people, like in Luke 9:50, Jesus says that the one who is not against me is for me. When he speaks to outsiders, he says, hey, if you're not against me, you're for me. When he speaks to insiders, he says very specifically, if you're not with me, you are against me. Do you see the difference there? His net of grace is huge. Jesus wants all people to respond. He doesn't demand a certain level of knowledge before you can start to follow him. He's about on-the-job training. I like that. But beware, because the more you and I receive, the more we're responsible for, and the more we know, the more we're expected. And so for these people who are witnessing firsthand his mighty deeds and hearing his amazing teaching and who knew the scriptures, he draws a line. He says, if by now you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not working with me to gather in the harvest, then you're basically scattering the lives I came to save because you're putting doubts in these people's minds that I'm trying to teach and heal. Salvation is a gift, but it's never neutral. Let's close with these last verses. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. And then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, each more evil than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, On the contrary... Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Everyone, I think, loves a good underdog story, like when the kid getting bullied gets their revenge, or when a hero rescues a mom-and-pop convenience store from a real estate baron trying to buy them out and build a high-rise. But most people know that in real life, the little guy doesn't win for long. I'm on a roll with Marvel illustrations, so let me just give one more. Luke Cage is an African-American hero who is experimented upon in the Marvel universe, not for real, uh, in prison, and he comes out with super strength and impenetrable skin. Okay, He's newly released from prison, and so he goes back to his home neighborhood in New York City. One evening, he sees some guys roughing up a couple who own the Chinese restaurant under his apartment building. In fact, they're his landlords. And so he goes in thinking that he's going to solve the problem by throwing the crooks out. But what he doesn't anticipate is that these two low-level crooks are really the muscle men for a much larger organized crime ring. Mob bosses don't go down easy. And soon, the mob comes back and shoots a missile into that Chinese restaurant and blows it up. Now, unless Luke Cage decided to camp out there in that restaurant every day after he saved them the first time, it may have been better not to ever cast those dudes out in the first place. And Jesus is making a similar warning here. It's not just about one-time healings or exercising a particular demon. We're never fully alive unless we are alive in Christ and relying on Christ. Jesus He's not some disgruntled anti-hero that gets drunk and then shows up at the right moment to fix our little problem, and then he leaves for like months and years on end and then shows up at the next time, like leaving us to fend for ourselves in between. He is the true hero who was and is and is to come. He is Emmanuel, the with us God. He never leaves us or forsakes us. And we are made as image bearers of God to be dependent on him. When we aren't trusting Jesus, we're opening ourselves up to other influences because we're always trusting something. And Jesus is warning us to remain in him. It's good to start down the road of discipleship, to repent and to be baptized. It is good to renounce a life of evil. But if we don't fill that void with the life-giving spirit of God, through growth as a disciple of Christ, we're susceptible to allowing darkness and temptation to bring us down. The last part of the story just sums it up real nicely. A woman from the crowd declares a blessing for the mother of Jesus. How blessed must be the woman who bore and nurtured this man. Jesus doesn't quite disagree with her, but instead points to something more important. Obedience. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Is Jesus ending then with a call to earning our salvation through adherence to Scripture? No. Let me remind us of the words of Jesus Himself, of what it means to observe the will of God. John 6:29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. God the Father has sent Jesus to be our hero to be the source of salvation and our life. He has bound the strong man. He can set us free from bondage. And I want to invite us to cast ourselves before him afresh. Lord, thank you for this very good news, that you are not only a hero that rescues us from the big things, but you remain with us to nurture us and to lead us into abundant life. And as we enter into this time of healing prayer, I pray that you would meet us in our brokenness, whether it's emotional or physical or spiritual. And that you would deliver us, Lord. Amen.